Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics, coming up. Dealing with the second wave of the pandemic in a country where not every region is taking the same precautions. As we've seen across the country, there are places where the epidemic curve uh, has functioned differently than others, where measures that have been put forward have been successful. The Atlantic bubble is an obvious example, but uh, even across uh, the other provinces, we've seen tremendous variances uh, in effectiveness of various measures and in population behaviors. Does the government need to change its strategy with China? as two Canadians remain in captivity. Frankly, the weak need and incompetent approach of the Liberal government has done nothing to achieve uh, the release of these two Canadian citizens. And concerns that non-Canadians voted in the 2019 election. From all reports, this was not an organized thing. Uh, it was, uh, it's still not clear whether this would have influenced any votes. It's Tuesday, October the 13th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Susan Delacourt, columnist for the Toronto Star. Susan, thank you for being with us. Uh, Happy day after Thanksgiving. (laughs) Hope you had a nice weekend. (laughs) Everybody did. Yes, I did. Yeah. And so let's start with where we stand post-Thanksgiving in uh, the pandemic crisis and how the government is handling it. There are different jurisdictions across the country that are taking different approaches, obviously, based on different data, different results in terms of testing, different numbers of infections uh, and people in hospital and that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on this? The prime minister has switched his daily updates now to joining the the public health officials for their briefings. Uh, What are your thoughts on where we stand at the moment? You know, Friday I voted as the most depressing day of the pandemic because I think it really settled in uh, the Prime Minister, as you said now, is, is seems to be choosing to move his, uh, his press conferences in the second wave to uh, a, a, a formal desk gathering with the public health officers. But I think that is to say this is still serious. And we saw that the government unveiled new rent relief programs, all sorts of ways to handle what is increasingly obvious to us is a big second wave and much more difficult decisions for for all governments to make. I think we're going to see over, you know, we're we're told in, we live in a hot zone, Ottawa, uh, Quebec is one too, Toronto as well. We're told that this is a 28-day kind of blitz on this thing, but I don't think anybody's under the illusion that after 28 days this is going to be over. So what we're seeing, I think, now is the government settling in for the long winter, a depressing one, where citizens are demoralized, businesses are very nervous, all the ways in which the first wave felt new and novel and and you know we're going to crack this thing we don't have that spirit out there anymore people are tired and people are worried and i think governments are going to have to manage that in the days ahead and it's going to be uh it's going to be tough for all these politicians because they're trying to do targeted closures and targeted um pandemic relief and making choices is a lot harder than just doing a blanket um you know, let's fix this thing. So um, I think I think you're going to see the next month or so be a difficult one for political leaders in managing citizens' morale and managing people's 
uh, real worries and anxiety as they head into the winter. Yeah, and it'll be the first winter of the pandemic, of course. This all started just before spring began in Canada. Um, What about the by-elections that are coming up in a couple of weeks? And there's a provincial election in British Columbia as well. How do you think the pandemic, and in particular in Ontario, where the by-elections are taking place, there's now a crackdown. How is that going to affect voter turnout, which is typically low in by-elections anyway? Yeah, some by-elections we've seen only get, you know, 25 to 30 percent turnout. And we saw last week the new Green Party leader who is running for one of those seats. It's hard to believe a by-election is just two weeks away. She has gone from winning the leadership to trying to win this Toronto Centre seat, which is a remote chance, we should say. That is a very, one of the safest Liberal ridings in Canada. I, I guess there's a, you know discussions all over the country in BC, as you mentioned, and in these two Toronto ridings about whether it was a good idea to have people voting. The Prime Minister has been reasonably assertive about this idea that we can't shut down democracy altogether, although he did prorogue Parliament, uh, that we have to uh, we have to let elections go ahead. I think he's saying that with an eye to the United States, where Donald Trump has been trying to delegitimize elections, but that's a whole other story. Uh, I think the Prime Minister was determined to show that Canadian democracy could go ahead. And again, as part of the most depressing day ever, Friday, when he said he said in response to this idea of postponing the by-elections that we don't know that things wouldn't be worse in the winter. So he's got to hold them by February, right. and he's seizing this moment now. How much risk it, it 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 presents to ordinary voters is uh, is a question because the people we're really talking about who are at risk are volunteers and the campaigners uh, who have to be out there face to face. But I, I've been reading some things, and I, I think. I think the idea that, that going out and casting a ballot puts you at risk is probably a stretch. While we're talking about elections, Elections Canada is looking into thousands of 2019 ballots that had unclear evidence of citizenship. What do you think that is all about, ultimately? Is there a risk that there were people voting in the last election, uh, last October, a year ago, who weren't eligible to do so? Well, I think this is always a risk. And, I, you know, when I saw the headline as well, my eyebrows shot up because I thought, oh, no, this is uh, this is the last thing we need is uh, some idea that our system is not safe. From all reports, this was not an organized thing. Uh, it was uh, it's still not clear whether this would have influenced any votes. I think they said it was. That the the questionable ballots would amount to 0.02 uh, percentage of all ballots cast and and across or in the writings suggested. So it seems to be that it may have been um, more administrative than a malicious error. Still, uh, Canada's voting system we're kind of proud of the fact, especially watching things going on in the United States, that these things don't happen. So. I think this is going to uh, light a fire under efforts to clean up the system if we have to vote in a pandemic, which is a real possibility. 
All right, let's turn to the two Canadians who are detained in China. It's coming up on two years now since Michael Kovrig was detained, and a lot of people continue to ask questions about what the government is doing to get them free. Uh, give us an update on, on where this stands and what your sense is of, uh, of what efforts there are happening. I know all of that happens uh, very quietly when it does, uh, for good reason. Uh, but what efforts are there to make some progress on this, separate from, if possible, the Meng Wanzhou uh, uh, storyline? Yeah, three three developments happened in the past few days that signal to me and probably to everybody else that this is getting a little less quiet. First of all, Bob Ray made an extraordinary speech uh, at the United Nations, which I would highly commend to anybody, where it was some of the toughest talk against China that we've heard since this whole saga happened two years ago. And it really shows the strength, if I may say, of having a Bob Ray at the United Nations who can make speeches like this. And he said in no certain terms to China, don't insult, don't think insulting us is a way to deal with us. And I thought we're going to see a backlash from China about this. Instead, what happened was for the first time in almost two years, our ambassador to China was given access to the two Michaels. Um, I read in The Guardian this morning, too, that one of them was uh, was quite surprised to find out that there was a pandemic out there. That is how much of the, the degree of their isolation is. They did not know the scale of what is going on in the rest of the world. So that's a, that's a positive development, and it follows a very tough speech from Bob Ray. And the prime minister talked to Donald Trump uh, over the weekend, too, and, and put in, we've seen this before, but the fact that the Prime Minister and Trump are talking about it, the fact that they've got consular access, virtual though it was, and that Bob Ray feels that he can make a speech, says to me that something may be happening here. I'm not sure what, and I don't think anybody wants to extend any false hopes, but, but something in the tone has changed. Hmm. It'll be interesting to watch that. Just quickly as we wrap up, uh, the Conservatives, we're going to uh, hear more from this in a report from Martin Stringer in a moment, but the Conservatives are trying to keep the Wee scandal alive by setting up an anti-corruption committee of the House of Commons. Uh, do you think they'll be successful in, in keeping this narrative going uh, in, in, with, all the, with all the other news that's happening? Yeah, I... I... I think if we were not in a second wave that this might have a little more purchase. I think this this looks like a conservative plan that was dreamed up in August, just went just around the same time the liberals were thinking of build back better and economic recovery of how things were going to go this fall. You know that um once back in parliament everybody would be reverting to sort of where things were in June. I, we're not in that place anymore. I talked to um, I talked to somebody in the prime minister's office uh, late in the summer, and I said, you know, I think you've given the conservatives ammunition to talk about we every day now, press conferences every day, by uh, by proroguing parliament. And someone in the prime minister's office said to me, we want them to hold press conferences every day on we while we are dealing with COVID. And it, they will look out of touch, and I think that's um, I think that's the risk for conservatives in in this. I think they 
their their concerns may be justified. It may have been something that Canadians were really eager to talk about in June. I think as a, as a theme of all of these things we've been talking about this morning too, this uh, this very depressing second wave has kind of overwhelmed all those best laid plans. Yeah. All right. Susan, great to have your comments on all of this. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mark. That's Susan Delacorte, columnist for the Toronto Star. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Hamilton Spectator, Sylvain Charlebois argues, we should not believe the pandemic propaganda coming out of China. Charlebois writes, life has returned to normal in most provinces in China, but 42 other countries, including Canada, have seen more cases than China, which is the most populous country in the world. Considering what's happening elsewhere, the data coming out of China is not only beyond comprehension, it's cruelly misleading for the rest of us. But this campaign has likely nothing to do with the international community. Indeed, China is desperately trying to restore its image with its own population. In the Toronto Star, Martin Reg Cohen argues Donald Trump has coarsened Canadian politics. He writes, Trumpism is here to stay a while yet. No matter who wins the presidential election, we have already lost our way. Not just American democracy, but Canada's political culture and public discourse. There will be no happy endings, even if Trump is vanquished and his Republican enablers lose their stranglehold on Washington. In McLean's, Michael Corrin considers the challenge of separating church and state. Corrin writes, Those in government have a duty to serve all of the people, but at the same time their consciences are partly, if not largely, formed by their faith. As for judges, who may sit on the Supreme Court of a nation that was founded on the religious neutrality of its governance, I see some of them struggling between a rock and a hard place. This will lead to obfuscation, euphemism, and shadow talk. In all honesty, how could it not? Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Conservatives have launched an attempt to get the House of Commons to create an anti-corruption committee. CPAC's Martin Stringer explains. Mark, the Conservatives held a press conference yesterday on Thanksgiving Monday to announce their intention of trying to launch this new Commons Anti-Corruption Committee. This week, even although Parliament's not sitting, the Commons Finance Committee is scheduled to sit on Thursday. The Tories and the NDP have been trying to revive at both the Finance Committee and the Ethics Committee investigations that both committees were conducting into the ethical controversy surrounding the government's now-scrapped attempt to get the WE charity to disperse almost a billion dollars in student summer grant monies. Now, both of those committees' investigations into the matter came to an end when the Prime Minister prorogued Parliament. The Tories hope to get all of the opposition parties' support at both the Finance Committee and to try to summon the Ethics Committee to sit as well this week. They can do that. Now, their thinking, though, is that with the majority of members on those committees in a minority parliament, they'll be able to use procedural levers to create the proposed anti-corruption committee that they're hoping to get up and running by the end of the month. Thanks, Martin. Also today, Economic Development Minister Melanie Jolie and Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna will make a virtual announcement in support of the economy. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Tuesday, October 13th. Tune into Primetime Politics every night on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.